Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Emily Cadens, professor of law at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. We'll be discussing two of her recent articles, Cheating Pays, which was recently published in the Columbia Law Review, and The Dark Side of Reputation, which was recently published in the Cardoza Law Review. I'll include links to both papers in the show notes for today's episode. Emily, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. In addition to being legally trained as a lawyer, you also are a PhD historian. Before we jump into our discussion of uh, cheating pays and the dark side of reputation, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, could you discuss your work as a legal historian, uh, the types of topics that you work in, or the sources or methodologies you use for your scholarship? Absolutely. I trained first as a medieval historian, and then the week after I defended my dissertation, I started law school. And Quite a vacation. Oh, yeah. It was awful. Um, I, I didn't really go to law school with the intention that I was going to be a legal historian academic, but I did start to see ways in which my historical training could inform you know, modern commercial law scholarship. And uh, in particular, I started with dealing with this this issue, this myth of the medieval law merchant, the idea that medieval merchants developed their own customs and that in the absence of the state, they could be perfectly self-regulating. The history doesn't bear this out. And as I was researching this, I was really struck because the law merchant theory assumes that reputation is going to incentivize honesty. And yet I kept seeing all this cheating in the court records. And, and, and I was seeing cheating by the same people. So that shouldn't happen uh, according to a, a reputation theory. And that got me interested in studying the history of commercial cheating. Uh, when I looked around, I discovered that there was very, very little done on cheating. It's, it's as if there's this assumption that in the past, merchants were always honest, but they weren't always honest, no more so than they are now. I found a way to get into that topic by using records of English equity courts from the 16th and 17th centuries. So equity courts are interesting because unlike the common law courts, they use a completely written procedure. So in the common law courts, you have a written pleading, but it's it's very formulaic. And then there are oral witness testimony at trial, and then there's the jury that decides the case, and none of that is recorded. But in equity courts, like Chancery, Court of Requests, Court of Star Chamber, I also use uh, records from the Court of Exchequer and the Court of Admiralty, the whole procedure is is written from the beginning to the end, including really extensive pleadings and uh, witness depositions. So you get cases with these very, very rich discussions about the cheating that happened and about the role of reputation and gossip in in how that cheating could happen or how it was policed. So it really opened up kind of a whole new avenue of scholarship for me. 
So as you allude in that, and as you discuss in the paper, there's a pretty well-established account of private ordering allowing reputational sanctions to, in some cases, compel honest dealing among market participants. And uh, in, in these articles, you push back on that a little bit. But before we get to that pushback, could you discuss some of the reasoning behind that private ordering reputation account, the conditions under which we expect it to hold, and maybe some of the implications of that? The, the, the base issue is, and, and this is an issue in, in economics, it's an issue in, in biology, the base issue is under what circumstances will cooperation rather than opportunism arise? And the private ordering is really looking at markets. Why will people be honest in dealing with somebody that maybe they don't know? So the private ordering account says that reputation is going to constrain wrongdoing under two sets of conditions. One is you have repeat players and they're transacting over and over and over again and there's no kind of no known end in sight. If you cheat, your trading partner is just going to dump you. They're just going to walk away. So you're not going to cheat because if you do, you lose this transaction. The other situation is when each transactor deals within a network of interconnected transactors. So you're not dealing with everybody. You're certainly not dealing with everybody repeatedly, but everybody is connected within this network such that if you cheat one person, they will gossip to you about somebody else who will gossip to you about somebody else who will gossip to you about somebody else, gossip about you to somebody else. And this information about how you're a cheater is going to spread. And then other people in the network are going to be reluctant to to do business with you. So this kind of network theory isn't assumed to operate under all conditions. It's primarily thought of as being applicable to situations where you have small groups, sometimes considered to be geographically constrained or ethnically homogeneous groups, although it's not clear that that's really uh, necessary. But it has to be groups in which gossip can spread easily. And if that's the case, then that group and its ability to gossip about you should be able to police people's behavior through the use of reputational sanctions. You you discuss the distinction between reputation and what you call the indices of, of reputation, and you, you point out that uh, the indices of reputation are manipulable, and you offer a few interesting case studies for that, both from uh, kind of present-day London and uh, 17th and 16th century London. Could you discuss what some of those case studies might indicate about how reputation can be manipulated and, and why it might not be as reliable um, a tool as, as we might think in markets? So don't you think it's kind of funny that we think, that we just sort of assume that reputation is is going to be true? I mean, the whole idea is that reputation will keep people from cheating. But if we're worried about people cheating, why shouldn't we be worried about them cheating on their reputation as well? Mm-hmm. What What is magical about reputation that will cause it to always be true information? The problem with reputation is it's not objective. It's based on signals. If I dress well and I drive an expensive car, are you going to think I'm rich? Well, I might not be rich. I might be faking that. And I might be faking it in order to cause you to think that I am rich. So the manipulation of reputation is really simple. Make yourself look better than you are. And people will believe that you are what they perceive you to be. And this is the entire basis of public relations, 
of advertising and of online reviews. And anybody who's got a business that depends upon online reviews will tell you they're really easy to fake. People want to trust. They want to think that, that the information they have about you is true. And by contrast, verification takes time. It might cost money. It might be socially or culturally inappropriate. Like, hey, you don't trust me? That's, you know, that's, uh, that's aggressive. Mm-hmm. Verification can also be difficult. It requires information, but people could hoard information in order to use it to their own advantage. Historical information about somebody could be inaccurate. You could hear that I have always been honest in the past. Well, maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was cheating, but nobody caught me. Or maybe I was honest because I didn't have the opportunity to cheat. But that doesn't mean I'm an honest person and that when I get opportunity to cheat, I'm not going to take it in the future. Gossip is really fickle. I might say one thing about you today, but then I talk to somebody else and it changes my mind. So I'll say another thing about you tomorrow. Well, what's true? Reputation doesn't have a truth value. And then if I find out that you're gossiping about me and you're telling a story about me, I can then put into the stream a counter narrative. Oh, no, no, that's not what happened. Let me account for all of the facts that you've heard about and turn them to make it look like I'm the one who's in the right, you know, make me look good. And now, how do I evaluate that? You know, people hear this gossip from two sides. Well, who's right? It's not clear. And what I found, the way I sort of study this in the reputation paper, is there are these wonderful bankruptcy fraud cases from the early 17th century. They're using the exact same style of bankruptcy fraud that people use today. It's called a bust out, which is that you establish good credit. You're paying on time. People think that you've got a lot of money because you pay, because you have a nice shop. And so then they start to extend you credit. You start buying things on credit. They extend you more and more and more credit. Meanwhile, you're taking those goods, you're selling them to somebody else at a loss because it doesn't matter to you. It's all pure profit. And then as soon as your sellers are, uh, you know, you need to start paying me. You disappear, you take off and they're left hanging the bag. That's a bust out. That's what happened in the 17th century. Uh, It hasn't changed since then. And it is entirely dependent upon the fraudster being able to manipulate people's perceptions of them as credit worthy. I, as I as I read the reputation paper, it, it definitely made me think about two of the most famous recent incidents of, of fraud. One, a, a confirmed fraud in the case of, of Bernie Madoff, who was the founder of, of the NASDAQ, and reputationally, uh, what a, a strong signal uh, he had with investors. And then the, the alleged fraud of Elizabeth Holmes and, and Theranos, where uh, Holmes was able to uh, really used the signal of uh, of Stanford University uh, and a lot of the the people who were on her board, very strong reputations um, to signal to investors that there was something real uh, about her operation. And it's it's really interesting to look at commercial frauds that happened in these instances of, of mercers, which I learned are, are cloth merchants, uh, and and things that are still happening today. Yeah, it's 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 exactly the same. Uh, you point out that even in dense networks where we expect reputation to have a constraining effect on the honesty of participants, there's still the potential for cheating. And you offer a, a cheating pays version of the classic prisoner's dilemma in which market participants have three choices. Uh, they can 
treat honestly, they can cheat. And if they decide to cheat, then they have two options within that to, to cheat big or to, to cheat small. How does this model work at a high level? Uh, under what conditions can it occur? And what are some of the issues or implications of that? All right. So let me begin with the observation that private ordering theories tend implicitly to talk about opportunism as an undifferentiated wrong. It's cheating. But in real life, we need to separate levels of cheating because they, they may have to be policed in different ways. You have the big cheat. So if we're talking about the sale of goods, that's non-delivery. It's non-payment. It's delivering unusable goods. It's a holdup. But then there's the small cheat, the, the cheating at the margins. The quality is a little less than you promised. The quantity is a little too low. The delivery is a little late. It's not non-performance. It's not terrible performance. It's just not perfect performance. But if I can get away with that and I can generalize it to enough transactions, then I can make a lot of money. So my argument in the cheating pays paper is that the threat of reputational sanctions may cause merchants and firms not to commit significant cheating. Because if you stiff somebody, word's going to get around and nobody will want to do business with you. Fine. That's, that's the private ordering theory. But that same threat may not be able to prevent common low-level cheating. And the reason is that reputational sanctions only work if you get caught and people talk. But you don't cheat if you think you're going to get caught because mm -hmm. that would be dumb. The only time you do that is if you've got this one big cheat that's going to rake in millions and millions of dollars, and then you can take your jet and you can fly to some country that has no extradition treaty, and you can just sit there and thumb your nose because you're not going to get to do business again. So you're going to cheat in such a way that you're not getting caught. But if you don't get caught, then nobody's gossiping about you, and then there's no harm to your reputation. Okay, so you cheat a little bit. Maybe you get caught. Now that doesn't automatically mean that you're now going to get shunned. It's going to be all this negative gossip about you because some victims might be just, eh, forget about it. It's not important enough. It was just a tiny little bit. It's not that big of a deal. I don't need to punish you. I don't need to gossip about it. Just, just forget it. Lump it. It's also not always clear if it's just this little cheating at the margin. Is it cheating? Is it deliberate? Or was it just a mistake? You just made a mistake. You just didn't send me enough. Maybe there was some kind of an unavoidable situation. You know, we're just going to, we'll just live with it. Maybe, uh, I, I see that you're kind of stiffing me a little bit, but I have other reasons to want to do business with you. You extend me credit. You sell me the goods at a lower price. Maybe they're switching costs. So I'm not going to gossip about you and ruin your reputation because I want you to stay in business. So, and then there's another level to this. You get caught and they gossip about you, but gossip can have two sides. There may be other people I contract with who don't believe I cheat them. And they're, no, no, Caden, she's honest. She's always been honest to me. What are you talking about? So the result is not a black and white reputation. It's a muddy reputation. Some people might believe that I'm a cheater. Some people might believe that I'm as honest as the day is long. So as long as some people still believe I'm honest, I stay in business. All right. So, and then now apply this to what I call the cheating pays theory. A cheater cheats partners who can't or don't verify. That might mean that the cheater is cheating some people, but not cheating other people. The cheater cheats only a little bit. The cheater cheats just to that point where if he gets caught, he could say, oh, it was a mistake. 
and I, you know, the cheater pays compensation. As long as the victim believes this, it was just a mistake. It was, it was innocent. The cheater's really honest. They paid me. We're all good now. Then no problem. No reputational harm. And the cheater can go forward being honest with that person whom they now realize can verify their behavior. The cheater then can go on for years and years and years cheating this way and only get caught if they get too greedy and they cheat too much and they can't explain it away anymore. If there's a pattern of their cheating and their victims get together and they identify that pattern or if there's a whistleblower. But if the cheater gets caught, the cheater again can leverage these people he never cheated or who never discovered his dishonesty to say, but, but no, that, that person never cheated me. That person was always honest with me. What are you talking about? So now you have this muddy reputational information, not black and white information. Apply that to the prisoner's dilemma. In a normal prisoner's dilemma game, each party has two choices, play honest or play cheat. And the theory is that reputational sanctions will incentivize parties to play honest in a multi-stage game because a party who plays cheat will forego future benefits. But cheating pays suggests that we need to differentiate between playing cheat, the little cheat, and playing defraud, the big cheat. So playing cheat, the little cheat, maybe you don't get caught, or maybe it's written off as a mistake or as a cost of doing business, and maybe it therefore doesn't end the relationship. You keep playing. If you played defraud, that's the big relationship-ending cheat. So my proposal is that the prisoner's dilemma modeling of this reputational sanctioning system is too simple, uh, and, and that to make it correspond more to what's going on in real life is you have to complicate it some and acknowledge the fact that there's, there's kinds of cheating that people can get away with without ending a relationship. In the, the movies, there's often a a scene where the the cheater or the fraudster is being confronted by the police detective who says you had a, a good thing going, but then you got greedy and so you got caught. And I think that's a, a vignette that really captures this model well. You you illustrate this cheating pays model with a really fascinating case study of a 17th century grocer named Francis Newton. And it's uh, a really rich and interesting story that I encourage listeners to look at in the, the Cheating Pays article, and there's a link to that in the episode notes for this episode. But at a high level, could you describe what that case study is, what, what some of the history of Francis Newton was, uh, what sources you use to get this case study pulled together, and, and how it illustrates your Cheating Pays model? Francis Newton was a London grocer, and that meant that he was a wholesaler. He cheated customers on the weight of goods and containers for about 10 years. He finally got caught, and the result was three lawsuits between 1618 and 1622. One case in Chancery, which was actually a contract dispute, and then two cases in the Court of Star Chamber. These three cases together generated over 500 pages of material. That's, that's after I've transcribed it, typed it out, single-spaced, 500 pages of material, of which about 400 pages are depositions. The incredible thing about this deposition evidence, beside the fact that it can tell you everything you want to know about the early 17th century grocery trade, is that you can trace not only the way the gossip about Newton's cheating spreads, but also about how people who heard the gossip reacted to it. So it's a perfect case study for cheating pays. What happened is that Newton cheated some customers 
but not others, or at least the ones he didn't cheat, never figured it out. He, he cheated them, but they never figured that out. And this continued for a lot of years. And when people he cheated did find out, the cheats were small enough that they'd contact him and he'd say, oh, oh, it was a mistake. It, you know, it, I, I had my apprentices weigh that. They, they messed it up. It was just a mistake. And people believe that because you're in a world in which technology was imperfect, human beings are imperfect. So fine. People believe that he just made a mistake and that he was, in fact, honest. He only got caught in the end because he was ratted out by two former uh, disgruntled apprentices who were unhappy because he didn't take them in as, as partners in his business. Three lawsuits followed, four years during which Newton's reputation is totally dragged through the mud. There's hundreds, about 112 or 118 different deponents. And yet, not everybody believes the gossip that they hear. So just like today, people back then were fully able to evaluate and assess the veracity of gossip. The anti-Newton people would go and they'd gossip and they'd, they'd pull people aside in the market and say, have you heard about Newton? And a lot of his customers shot back, he never cheated me. And because he never cheated me, I don't think he's a cheater. And in fact, I think it's the apprentices are just making all of this up for their own purposes. So what you ended up with was pages and pages of Newton's terrible, Newton's terrible, Newton's terrible, and then pages and pages of, no, Newton's great. Newton never cheated. Ultimately, the court found him guilty. I think, frankly, they found him guilty just as a, to send a message to kind of the London markets as opposed to whether they really thought Newton was a cheater. He was fined a thousand pounds. That's about $200,000 today. And yet it's not clear he ever paid that money. He stayed in business in the same location for the rest of his life. It seems to be a lot of his customers continue to do business with him. So the people who believed he cheated were confirmed he was a cheater, but the people who didn't believe he cheated still didn't think he cheated. And so reputation didn't work because everybody knew these stories, and yet that didn't cause them necessarily to stop doing business with Newton. So he got to profit from 10 years of cheating. Why might it be that that after somebody's exposed as being untrustworthy and assuming that we even believe the expose that he or she or it in the case of a company might suffer only modest market sanctions or even no market sanctions or uh, time limited market sanctions and be able to to go on and, and have a, a prosperous career doing the, the same same thing. I, I imagine we can think of contemporary examples of of somebody who's experienced something like that and nevertheless seems to rebound and still succeed in, in his or her field uh, despite that earlier expose. Let me give you a great example. I'll bet you didn't know, well, you know from reading my paper, but I'll bet most people don't know that in California and New York in 2014 and 2015, Whole Foods stores were found overcharging customers on weight. They were found doing exactly the same thing that Newton was doing in the early 17th centuries. You know that? The problem is we don't know that. So if we don't know about the cheating, then reputational sanctions don't work. Well, cheating, again, as we've talked about, the reputation can be manipulated. It's not necessarily one thing or another. And you know, what this means, I think, today in a world that's so much driven by these online reputation scores that are so easily falsified and by these sophisticated advertising campaigns that can make us believe anything is, is that we can't really expect reputation concerns to incentivize companies to want to be honest. Because if they can get away with cheating and cheating is profitable, 
why wouldn't they cheat? So we should be a lot more skeptical about assuming that the people we're doing business with are, in fact, really being honest. In your articles, you present case studies involving 16th, 17th century English merchants, uh, mercers, and, and grocers. What big takeaways should there be from a historical standpoint about the connection between these cases and markets today? Is is there uh, a connection between the Bernie Madoffs, the Volkswagen emission scandals, uh, and the conduct of, of these merchants uh, hundreds of years ago? It's been said that the past is a foreign country. In other words, we can't understand it. They weren't like us. But I had a professor in college who said that, you know, we can assume that the pyramids were not built by a single lusty Egyptian in a day. In other words, human beings past and present are really physically similar, they're really mentally similar, and they're really emotionally similar. So things that we do today, we shouldn't assume that they didn't happen in the past and vice versa. You know, after every new big scandal blows up, you'll get these these newspaper editorials sighing about how people used to be honest, but they aren't honest anymore. It's a decline of civilization. I can show you examples of that sentiment going all the way back to ancient Athens. It's It's been a constant. People always cheated. Maybe the cheats are bigger and more destructive today because of the size and the sophistication and the interconnectedness of the economy, but people have always been selfish and greedy, and they will always be selfish and greedy. The difference, I think, in the past is that there was not a reluctance to try to use regulation to control cheating. This regulation, the laws might not have been particularly effective because you had these puny governments, you had no police force, you had very little professional bureaucracy. But there was an understanding that an appropriate response to cheating was not, oh, let reputation control it. It was, gee, we better do something about this. Maybe we should try making some laws. What takeaways would you like scholars to to take from from these articles, particularly in, in how we think about uh, the notion of, of reputations and markets uh, and the limitations that reputation has as a trust and a, a sanctioning mechanism? I'd say, first of all, understand that private ordering is not perfect. It's not a magic bullet solution to all market problems. Uh, just as there are imperfections in enforcing behavior through legal systems, there are also imperfections in private ordering systems. Now, while private ordering may work well enough on average to sustain trade within a market, that's not the same as saying that there's no cheating. Okay. So second, understand that reputation-based systems are going to vary in their effectiveness. To really, really make them work, you have to go beyond the simple fear of somebody's going to put a negative post about my restaurant on Yelp. You have to Build a private ordering system around tight social bonds in which people feel morally compelled to be honest or at least have a very credible fear of losing not only business but also their social status if they cheat. And third, flip side of that, research seems to show that people's self-perception of as honest is a more important driver of their behavior than their concerns about reputation because reputation is just not you know, it doesn't have pinpoint accuracy. But if if I feel like I'm going to feel bad if I cheat, I won't cheat. Then people aren't really honest. People cheat a lot. So assume low-level cheating is going to happen because it's profitable. So that means that if you don't 
consider it just a cost of doing business that there's this low-level cheating, you need to do something. One possible solution might be to build verification mechanisms into your transactions, and that can often be done through contract mechanisms. And then finally, kind of broadening it out some, it's the way that the cheating affects sort of the whole society. We need to think really hard about the extent to which we're cutting off litigation avenues for people harmed by low-level cheating, for basically for consumers. We used to police this through consumer class actions, but as businesses find ways to avoid those with the help of the Supreme Court, then what incentive do they have not to cheat customers? Because who's going to stop them? Because reputation isn't exact enough to cause them to, to, oh, we better not cheat because we might get a bad reputation. No, we won't get a bad reputation. We'll throw our PR people out after it and you know, we'll muddy the waters and, and, and after a day it'll be forgotten. So then what? Our guest today has been Emily Cadence, professor of law at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. We've discussed two of her articles, Cheating Pays, which was recently published in the Columbia Law Review, and The Dark Side of Reputation, which was recently published in the Cardozo Law Review. I'll include links to both of those articles in the show notes for today's episode. Emily, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew.